The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Security clearance denials are often caused by financial issues. A lot of people are surprised to learn that financial issues are one of the top reasons for security clearance denial or revocation. Doing a few simple things to get your finances in order is actually can be really good for your career and for your security clearance. So today we're chatting with bringing an expert on financial security issues. We are so thrilled to have with us Kate Horrell, who does financial planning. She's an accredited financial counselor and a Navy spouse. And she has said this is a topic that she is really passionate about. So I just so appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us to talk about financial issues and how they can affect service members or anybody that's working in the national security space. I'm thrilled to be here. Like you said, I'm, I'm a little passionate about this. <laughs> well, that's what we love. Uh, so again, I know that you're a financial planner, but you've worked specifically with the military community for years now. Walk us through what that means, kind of what your job is and how you help service members in particular, and maybe what some of the unique financial issues you come across in dealing with service members and providing financial planning. Absolutely. So I almost exclusively at this point do my work through writing and through education projects, working on different kind of curriculums and things like that. I still do meet with some people now and then one-on-one, but I can reach more people through the written and spoken word. But I've worked with thousands of military families over the years, and they do have some unique financial challenges, but they also have some financial opportunities. One of the things that is unique about military members is that they have these built-in pay increases on a regular basis, right? Every time you reach a time and service level, you get a little bump in pay. This can be a huge benefit to someone to know that they're going to get this little pay increase every two years or so. But it also is an opportunity to maybe make some decisions that aren't the smartest because you think, oh, I know that next year I'm going to get that pay raise. You know, I didn't think about that. That makes sense. Planning or anticipating, you know, pay increase on the horizon and, Service members definitely do have more transparency or even folks that are in the GS system, at least thoughts on what incremental amount that that will be. But again, probably as a financial planner, you know that one of the biggest mistakes you can make is spending money that you don't already have. (laughs) Is that what I'm gathering from that? That is exactly true. And I think it's human nature. If you feel fairly confident that that increase in pay is going to be coming, it makes sense, sort of. You know, oh, I can't really afford this car right now, but I'm going to get a $400 pay increase in June. So we'll be fine. So that does create some challenges for anybody who's in that military members or GS who are in a situation where they have more predictability in their pay schedule. On the flip side, both service members and GS employees have some benefits, right? Medical bills are 46% of bankruptcies in this country. And if you're a military service member or a GS employee who's working with federal health insurance, you're probably not going to fall into that situation. So that's a big benefit. 
I wasn't aware of that stat, and I think that's super relevant. Talking about security clearance denials and revocations and how financial issues are the top cause of that, the cause of debt certainly matters in the security clearance process and and when folks are dialing into that. But I still find that a lot of folks who are surprised to know that, yeah, the government actually cares about things like amount of student loan debt, paying taxes, or things like that. Do you think individuals working in national security or service members realize that keeping up with their finances can have career implications as well? Because again, for that service member probably has a security clearance as well. So if they get themselves, walk them down that path where they're no longer able to pay their bills, you know, again, that could certainly have implications in terms of being able to maintain clearance eligibility. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I see two groups. I have the group that is so concerned about their finances and their security clearance that they're almost hyper-focused on it. And then there is the larger group that seems to not have any idea that there's a relationship at all. So when I'm working with these people, I try to focus on two concepts. One of them is being careful and one of them is being transparent. Basically, that means taking the care that you're going to do the right thing in the first place, but when you're a human being and you make a mistake, to report it to whoever you need to report it to and to address the issue and not just hope that it's going to go away. For example, if you are having trouble paying your bills or you've gotten yourself overextended financially, get some help and tell your command what's going on. If you are carrying a government travel card, make sure you don't accidentally pull it out when you go pick up that prescription at the pharmacy. But if you do accidentally turn around and tell whoever you need to tell, don't just hope that it's going to go away. Digging your head in the sand is often a bigger problem than the financial concern itself. We see that a lot with individuals who come into the process. And like you said, kind of, you can you can tell that there's something that happened that probably, again, would fall under that category of something maybe beyond their control or an accident or a momentary lapse in judgment. At that moment, it could certainly be mitigated. Again, there would, there would probably be procedures or steps or, you know, even financial counseling remedies. But the longer that you bury it, the longer your head's in the sand, then it does become this insurmountable obstacle that you can't get over. Is there still hope for those individuals? In almost all cases, I will say yes. I certainly don't want to say that there is hope for every single person in every situation. The Department of Defense and also the federal government writ large really have provided a wide variety of resources to help service members and federal employees get a handle on their finances and to tackle any issues that they do have. Military members have financial counselors on their installation. Most agencies have some sort of, I don't want to speak to exactly how it works in every single agency because I really don't know for sure, but, you know, either has someone who works within their agency who does financial education or they may have an outside third party that provides those services. Reaching out for help is the biggest step that I can identify that makes the difference if if your security clearance does come up for review based upon financial concerns, being able to say, here's where I went off track, here's what I did about it, seems to be the biggest mitigating factor in terms of t- turning that clearance situation around. You mentioned another key piece you know, earlier, the self-reporting aspect. So I think that's also key for security clearance holders. Anybody with an active federal security clearance has self-reporting requirements, and certainly financial issues would be one of them. So filing for bankruptcy, you know, running into any kind of serious financial issues, even a change in status, like there's a reason marriage, divorce, relationship status has to be reported, because sometimes that comes with financial or other implications along with it as well. 
And certainly having reported that will help you. If you come, you know, have financial issues down the road that are tied up in a divorce, but you never reported the divorce to the government and you were required to do that, it becomes a little bit harder. So kind of maybe talk about that reporting aspect or reaching out to help and how important that is. Yeah, I mean, I think you've summed it up really nicely. Transparency is really key in all aspects of your security clearance. The emphasis is to include that that includes your finances, right? You are supposed to disclose all sorts of things if you hold a security clearance. It's just important for anyone who does hold a clearance to remember that that includes financial issues. And it includes those things that you mentioned, like a change of status, that might impact financial issues, even if that's not your primary concern. The divorce is a great example that in every case, someone isn't necessarily thinking of divorce as a financial transaction. If you are able to remove some of the many other considerations that come with a divorce, then you are able to see that there is a financial thing that is happening there. And so it makes it a little bit easier to understand why people want that to be reported. Yeah, because we come across those, co- you know, those cases at clearance jobs, and it can sometimes help mitigate those financial issues. Again, financial issues happen. Concern for the government about reliability and trustworthiness is if somebody comes into a financial situation, has no idea how they got there. I mean, maybe speak to that. I mean, how much is just financial awareness important? And what does that consist of? Is that just, I think, I sometimes feel like it's too easily encapsulated as knowing your credit score, but what are a few of the financial pulse points that anybody working in national security or service member or government should kind of be aware of? Yeah, I would say there's probably four or five questions you can ask yourself. Obviously, your credit score can be an indicator. And it isn't so much what your credit score is, it's what your credit score is doing. Is your credit score staying stable? Did it take a dive last month? A low credit score that remains consistently low is probably less concerning than a high credit score that took a 200-point tumble last month. You know, from the perspective of someone who's looking at your financial stability, that's a huge red flag. The other questions you might ask yourself when you're wondering, is this something I should report to somebody? Can you pay your bills every month? If you're having problems paying your bills from month to month, you're probably in a situation that wants to be reported. Take a step backward from that and just don't get overextended. And it's tempting, right? We all have a finite number of resources and the world is a huge place full of things. It happens that people sometimes get overextended. Another question people might want to ask themselves, is this preventing me from sleeping at night? If you're worried about your finances to the point that it's impacting your sleep or any other part of your life, that's probably a situation that you want to report to somebody. Because if it's worrying you to keep you from sleeping, it's going to be a question that's going to come up when your clearance is yeah. reviewed. And now we're gearing up for tax season. There, there are two types of people, those people who have already paid their taxes and people like me who are going to make their brother file their taxes for them sometime <laughs> right around the due date. But as we get ready for tax season, tax issues certainly come up in the security clearance process. And that's what we say because the type of debt matters. And the government is particularly concerned about someone who just doesn't care about following government rules. And one of those government rules is filing your taxes every year and not even just paying. We've had people come to us before and like, well, I didn't owe taxes, so I didn't file. We're like, well, government doesn't care about that. <laughs> you still have to file taxes every year. But what are maybe some of the tax issues that come up that you see? So one of the big issues that affects both military families and national security workers is what state do I even live in? People who are currently serving on active duty and their spouses have special rules about filing in their state of legal residence. But then you go overseas and you think, well, I went overseas and I started out overseas and I was on active duty, but then I retired, but then I stayed overseas. 
And these create a lot of questions. I This is something that I get asked a lot. Hey, here's my situation. I used to live in Wisconsin, but then I got transferred to California and then I went to Japan and then my wife retired and I don't know what state I live in. These are not insurmountable questions, but you really want to get the answer right. Because in addition to your federal taxes, state governments care too. They have an interest in receiving the taxes that they think that they're owed. And when you go overseas, whether as a civilian or as a currently serving service member or a military family member, this is an issue. Another issue that this year is going to be a big concern for people is these advanced child tax credits. There is, I don't want to make any claims about whether this process went well or went poorly. I think you can find plenty of evidence that suggests that it went really well and plenty of evidence that suggests that there are going to be some serious problems. But this might be a year, if you're a DIY person, this might be the year that you want to pull in a professional, get an enrolled agent, get a CPA who specializes in taxes. Hopefully, find somebody who's really good at your status, whether that's a military service member or whether that is a federal employee who understands your unique situation. This is a year you might want to pull in a professional. And I think this is a great conversation. Again, financial issues, definitely a concern. Taking proactive steps, as we saw, is critical. So thank you again, Kate Hurl, for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for listening in on this segment of Security Clearance and Security. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am your co-host, attorney Sean Bigley. I'm here with Lindy Kaiser from clearancejobs.com, and we're talking this segment about ODNI's recent change in marijuana policy, and if in fact it is a change at all. Lindy, I know this has generated quite a bit of interest on clearancejobs.com and on clearancejobs blog. What is your general sense of people's impression of this memorandum? Well, yeah, I think when we were one of the first outlets to publish it, thank you for your help with that, Sean, in terms of like helping us provide the insight on that. But it was interesting, the marijuana publications covered it. So we got some feedback from them, but I don't think across the board, I think Odie and I was actually surprised that they didn't get more feedback or attention on the memo. I thought it was pretty significant, but just because it's always, it's been such a policy gray area because it had the three prongs of addressing drug use prior to applying for a security clearance. They also addressed CBD products and they addressed investment in marijuana stocks, which are three hot topic issues that we get a ton of questions on. So for me, it's nice for a clearance applicant or holder standpoint that you at least now have guidance around it. I guess maybe it didn't get more attention because it's not so much different than kind of the common sense advice folks like you have been providing to applicants for a while now. But yeah, I don't think there was as much interest in it. Maybe can you speak to that? Do you think it's a, it represents a policy shift at all or were you surprised by anything in the memo? I, I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, there was a lot of interest from... Folks, as you said, in the marijuana industry when this came out with the assumption that this was going to be heralding some big new shift in policy. And I think once people actually read it, there was a lot of that sort of, you know, womp womp (laughs) kind of a reaction um, because really it didn't change a lot. What it did do was sort of, as you said, clarify or put into writing a lot of the common sense advice that 
people had already been getting from their security officers, from legal counsel, et cetera, because this was such a gray area in some of these issues, particularly with CBD oil. And we can talk more about that in a second. But one of the things that I did think was helpful with this memo, the language that was included, how past marijuana use is a relevant factor in adjudications, but shouldn't be outcome determinative. Now, theoretically, that's always been the case, right? Like anybody who's familiar with how the security clearance process works, and particularly adjudications, understands that if you're applying for a clearance, you are supposed to be evaluated from a whole person perspective. So the mere fact that you previously used marijuana isn't inherently disqualifying. It's not, you know, an automatic No, it's supposed to be evaluated on a case by case basis. And one of the biggest mitigating factors is often the passage of time without use. So traditionally, somebody who's used within the last 12 months, that's kind of a non-starter. There is a, a legal provision called the bond amendment that says you can't be a current user of illegal drugs and have a clearance. And so this is sort of one of the, the very few black and white areas in security clearance law. The government has interpreted that term current user to mean anyone who's used within the last 12 months. So as long as you've got that 12 months of abstinence under your belt, anything beyond that has typically been viewed as icing on the cake. It's helpful There are obviously outliers. We get people who use marijuana for 20 years and then they have 12 months of abstinence and they're like, hey, ready for my clearance. And the government's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not entirely convinced that you actually are doing what you're saying in terms of abstinence. We want to see some more time. Beyond that, you know, the the run of the mill marijuana cases, a lot of times, you know, people would call us and say, geez, I, I used marijuana 18 months ago. Can I even apply for a clearance or is this you know, a guaranteed denial? And so we would have to explain, no, 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 it's assessed on a case-by-case basis. This is helpful because we can now have something to point to that says, you know, no, it is not outcome determinative in and of itself. There are other factors that need to be taken into consideration. And there are some agencies in particular that have taken a pretty hard line on past marijuana use. So we've already started using this memo in some of our cases, you know, where we've pointed to and said, hey, you know, you guys need to reevaluate your approach when you're assessing recency. You know, that's I'm I'm glad you brought up that point because that was definitely a question that I had in terms of have we seen this Because that's the biggest question I have gotten is, okay, that sounds great, but what is to stop, you know, three-letter agencies in particular who have their own stringent suitability guidelines from continuing to say, you know, we want that 12-month period of time. And I think my thought is there's certainly nothing that prohibits an individual agency from layering their own suitability. But if that does result in a clearance denial, you do have good grounds to go back. And if that was the sole justification used, I think have a pretty decent chance. I think we see it take time for these kind of policies to cycle through where you are going to have denials and revocations maybe that now have better legs for approval based on the policy. Absolutely. And I I guess, you know, I I should be clear here. I mean, what the memo doesn't do is it doesn't change the bond amendment. It doesn't override that. So if you have used illegal drugs within the last 12 months, you are going to be in for an uphill battle for getting a clearance because they're going to sort of default to the assessment that you're a current user. If you've used in the last 12 months, even marijuana, and you're applying for a clearance or considering applying for a clearance, you really ought to wait until you've at least hit that one year mark. That's kind of a magic, you know, number in terms of abstinence time period. Anything after that then becomes kind of the gray area that has to be assessed on a case by case basis. But 
within the last 12 months, if you've used, that's going to be a very, very tough sell. You brought up suitability, and that's sort of another layer to the onion here. And I think it's worth noting also that this memo comes on the heels of a Biden administration memo that was put out earlier last year that revised and clarified the suitability criteria for marijuana use in particular. And so that memorandum applied only to suitability determinations. It explicitly did not apply to security clearance determinations. And that memo said, if you are evaluating somebody for suitability, which our listeners you know, need to understand is, is different than a security clearance adjudication. There's two sort of tracks if you're applying for federal employment that you're evaluated under. One is suitability and one is security. And I realize this is a lot of semantics and people may be sort of scratching their heads going, you know, what's the difference? The reality is in cases of drug use, for example, there really isn't a lot of difference. The criteria are similar. The processes are different. And depending on whether you need a security clearance for the job that you're applying for or not, you could be evaluated just under the suitability standards or both. And so you always have to go into these applications with sort of the both sides of the equation that you're considering. And I, I realize, I mean, again, this is like, you know, makes people's eyes glaze over. This is, this is sort of an archaic relic of the federal hiring process that a lot of people have argued should be reformed. But nonetheless, we're stuck with it for now. So bottom line is when it comes to recency of marijuana use, if you're only being evaluated for suitability, there is more flexibility in terms of recency. When it comes to security clearances, there's still that one-year window that you have to get outside of since the last use. And then anything beyond that, this memorandum coupled with existing policy requires that it be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. I mean, how many times do I have to say clearance process, clear as mud? That's my tagline. That's my SDI sub tagline. But (laughs) CBD products, I mean, I think that's worth addressing too, because I do feel like we have not had any policy. We've had the policy that they really, this is not really any different than what I've heard so far, which is buyer beware. But they're basically saying if you use a CBD product and you test positive on a drug test, you're probably going to lose your clearance. Yeah. I mean, uh, another real touchy issue. And I I just want to caution our listeners, this is not open season for CBD oil. This memorandum does nothing to change how people who test positive on a drug test for THC, which is the active ingredient in both marijuana and CBD oil, albeit to much lesser extent in CBD oil, this memo does nothing to change how those folks will be treated. So it is, as you say, buyer beware. I say, you know, proceed at your own risk, same thing. But we have seen cases of people who have lost their clearances and their careers because they have taken CBD oil, including folks who have just done it topically. They've taken like a cream that was recommended by a doctor and put it on, you know, their knee or something. And you do that enough and the THC does accumulate in your body. And then if you take a drug test, the onus is on you to disprove that you were not using marijuana. And it's unfortunate. There are, you know, some defenses potentially available, but if it's something that you're thinking about doing, I would really, really advise against it. There are other medications that are prescription and perfectly legitimate that are out there This is just not something that clearance holders ought to be playing around with. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, you know, even the security clearance process aside, your individual agency might have its own rules. Like DOD has its own ban on CBD products. 
that's a huge pool of the the clear talent pool. So if your your individual agency might have its own rules, which is just shocking because I live not too far from military base, and it, there's always the joke about there's just a few things that you find outside of every military base or installation. There's always right. going to be you know a strip club, a pawn shop a liquor store. And now the CBD things are popping up, which I'm like, are they just trying to get some poor young 18 year old who has no idea that even signed an SF 86, which I've met many of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. I mean, it's in my grocery store. I I can literally walk into my grocery store and buy my milk and bread and a can of CBD oil. So I I understand why people pursue this stuff. And I, and you know, we've had cases where doctors have recommended it. So, you know, when your doctor's telling you, Oh, go get some ointment that has CBD in it to, you know, help your pain. I mean, most people are going to go, okay, yeah. All right. My doctor's not going <laughs> to tell me something that, you know, I shouldn't be doing. There are just really, unfortunately, some very strict rules on this and the, the government policies just haven't really caught up. The changes that are happening are happening faster than the government policy can keep up with. And so as a result, you get these scenarios where somebody has done something, you know, that they thought was perfectly legitimate and they get nailed for it. And it's really, really unfortunate. But we've seen this happen now probably a half a dozen times at several different agencies, uh, the Department of Energy, several different IC agencies. As you pointed out, DOD does have a policy against it for service members. Um, There's a ban at the Department of Defense for anybody in uniform on any CBD oil, even stuff that is federally legalized. It doesn't apply to civilians, at least as of yet, as far as I'm aware, uh, I guess I should say last time I checked. But so, you know, you have to really use your due diligence here. What we have had some people find out the hard way is just because CBD oil is within the threshold of being federally legal does not mean that the label on the product is actually accurate. And it does not mean that if you take enough of it, you aren't still going to test positive for THC. On that note, last aspect of the memo was the marijuana investment topic. So the marijuana investment piece. So it's kind of the same thing. I feel like we've had the same guidance, but they're just basically codifying kind of what they've been responding more informally. And that's just saying directly invest in a marijuana business that would certainly qualify for drug involvement. And it's just a lot easier to do with a lot of states legalizing. There are small business investment opportunities that involve drugs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's worth pointing out for our listeners that the adjudicative guidelines that govern security clearance holders, they don't talk about drug use. They talk about drug involvement and drug use is certainly drug involvement, but there are a lot of other ways that you can be involved in illegal drugs. And unfortunately, investing directly in a company that is engaged in marijuana distribution, growth, sales, etc. is one way. Now, doing it within a broadly based index fund that just happens to contain one or two marijuana related investments, not really an issue. But yeah, you got to stay away from those direct investments where, you know, your buddy's opening up a marijuana shop and asks for, uh, you know, 10 grand to to get things off the ground. That's not going to be good, nor is uh, investing directly in in the stock of a marijuana related company. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. 
Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.